Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the House That Hinky Built podcast. As always, I am your host, Jackson Frank. And per usual, this will be hosted on Spotify Greenroom. Uh, today, I have a very special guest. Many of you, I'm sure, know him. Uh, P.D. Webb, uh, who is uh, at Above the Break 3 on Twitter. Um, arguably or inarguably, the best mind still publicly available on Draft Twitter, uh, as many people have been scooped up by, by organizations and whatnot. But even if they weren't, uh, PD's insight is incredible. Uh, so today we're going to talk about a four, four more prospects, kind of continuing as we to approach the draft for the Sixers. Uh, we're going to talk about BJ Boston, JT Thor, Deuce McBride, and Trey Murphy the uh, third. Talk about kind of their general skill sets and then maybe how they'll fit in the Sixers, some swing skills. Basically, a similar outline I've done for these first couple of episodes about prospects, you know, who would six might target the 28th and overall, 28th and 50th overall picks. Um, I hope this is continue to, continuing to be insightful for everyone listening. And as always, if you're listening to this as a podcast, please, please, please review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, the support, again, has been really, really awesome, and I look forward to continuing this podcast and uh as always, if you have anything feedback or criticism you'd like me to see, like me to like to see me do better, um, please never hesitate to reach out. I'm always willing to take feedback and see if I can improve the experience for everyone listening. But um, uh, here we are. Let's PD is here, so we're gonna get going pretty soon. Hey PD, how are you doing today? Can we hear you, PD? Are you there, PD? Can you guys hear me? I can I hear you now. Here. Uh, <laughs> okay. Okay, you can hear me now. It still, it still has the, uh, uh, like, muted button on. Huh. Uh, I, th- I can hear you. You're a little bit in and out, but I, I can hear you at times. Might be. It's, it, there's a little bar next to your name that comes in and out. Um, and now you got the muted thing. For anyone listening to podcasts, I apologize for the technical difficulties, but uh, we're going to get this started here uh, as soon as we can. Pete, you mind speaking to? We can hear you now. Yeah, a little better now. I can hear. Can you, you hear me? Yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, so I, I grabbed. Cool. How are you doing today? Uh, I'm on headphones. Uh, I'm I'm doing well. I'm reporting live to you from Augusta, Georgia. Uh, I am in the <laughs> parking lot of uh, of Peach Jam. Uh, I found the one bench that is uh, under a little bit of shade. Um, as you may hear, there are cars and golf carts going by. Um, so we're really in the wild, uh, you know, some live on the scene gumshoe type stuff, which, <laughs> I mean, you're obviously more familiar with that, you know, being uh, a, a cover story writer and whatnot. Um, <laughs> but this is this is a first for me. Uh, I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to talk some prospects and uh, everybody gets to enjoy the uh, ambient cicadas and golf carts that are going by. Exactly. Yes, I, I love that. Um, so yeah, as I as I said, uh, for everyone listening, just as a recap, we're going to hit on four prospects today that might be available to the Sixers at twenty eight and fifty. Those are Deuce McBride, Trey Murphy, JT Thor, and BJ Boston. The plan will be the same uh, per usual: is break down each of those guys and they might fit, and get a little more nuance of it. But uh, let's just let's just kick it off. Um, Kind of give listeners a rundown of each of those of each of these guys, um, and then maybe include why you think. They might be good fits for the Sixers at, at each of these each of these picks. Um, just for anyone who's not really familiar with with these four prospects. Yeah. Um, so by saying Deuce McBride is uh, sort of a typical two way guard. Um, you know, you can use him in college. He was used as a primary, but his value in the league. Is being you know a, a bulldog who can kind of slide between ones and twos, and maybe like a certain type of, of, of wing, um, probably on the skinnier side. Um, he had shooting improvement and just like general aggressiveness improvement as a sophomore um, to the point where I, like he started to add some shooting versatility. Um, that's sort of like his his hallmarks. I think the passing is good. I don't, I don't mean to cut you off, Peter. You are a little choppy here. Apparently, I don't know if it's the same for everyone else. Um, if anyone is listening and can maybe attest to that or refute it, but you are a little choppy for me coming in and out right now. You were good. You were good previously, but this, this second kind of time, uh, you were a little choppy. I apologize for that. I apologize for everyone listening, of course. Well, um, for I, anyone listening, can you comment? Wait, wait. Yeah, I, 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 uh, for anyone listening, can you, co- yeah. Okay. So, uh, says it's choppy. Um, 
Yeah, I don't know what the solution is here. I, you mind talking one more time, see if we can hear it any better? Yeah, I apologize, guys, for uh, for the um, in and out quality. Um, Deuce is uh, a, a secondary creator who uh, brings most of his value on defense and and as a uh, off the uh, as a catch and shoot guy. Um, you ideally want him to just crawl into ball handlers handles. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, um, for Philly specifically, um, I don't know if he solves the problem, which is the ability to get two feet in the paint and, and, you know, uh, be a high level, uh, primary shot creator, but in a world where either Ben Simmons is traded or there is, uh, you know, an adjustment to the, the pecking order of shot creation, um, Deuce, I think Deuce fits in well at 28. Uh, in the late twenties, because like that's you're not going to get a, a an extreme upside bet at, at the point of attack, especially in this draft, which is really short on point of attack creators. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's that's the thing I keep stressing too. Is it's important that you know at twenty eight, you you mean like you know, Maxi was a great pick at twenty one, and he was still on the fringe of the rotation at times. So twenty eight, you're not going to get some you know, incredible guy who solves all their flaws. Um, but yeah, and I think. The, you know, with Deuce, I'm curious, what do you make of his ability as an off-ball defender and ability to navigate screens? Because I think the Sixers, that wasn't really a big issue in terms of, like, their general defense. But one area they did, they did kind of lack is that defender who can really tail those elite off-ball shooters, elite off-ball players. Um, obviously, Ben Simmons was better on the ball, and Danny Green is just not that guy at this point. He's much better. He's kind of a, a guy at the nail, stunt and recovery, using his smarts and strength, but not chasing guys around. So... Is Deuce a guy that could give them a little more there in terms of ability to chase guys around, or what do you make of that sort of role for him defensively? I think that he's good at it. I mean, he doesn't have, like, super optimal length. Uh, he's, he's plus six, which is good, but, like, for an off-ball player, you're mostly going to be putting him on, like, twos and wings, where, like, just having mm-hmm. a 6'9 wingspan is not quite as threatening. Um, I mean, to me, that would be sort of, I don't want to say misallocating his gifts, but his, his true virtue is just being on the ball team. And having Maxi, Simmons, uh, and Matisse like sort of makes there to be a redundancy. I mean you can never mm-hmm. have too many good on ball defenders, but you're like you ideally I think want somebody that has a, a little different allocation of on ball and off ball talents and, and size. Um if you're considering this as the roster going into next year. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think I definitely agree with there. And um you mentioned kind of the offense and him being a spot-up guy, not necessarily entirely solving the two feet in the paint issue, which is a very succinct way to, to, to address their issues or summarize their issues offensively. Um, but Deuce kind of played, he had a different, he had a, he had a larger kind of different role going from his freshman year to his sophomore year. Um, hit, you know, had a huge jump as a, as a shooter. I think went from like 30% from three to about 41%. Ended his two years at about 37%, but from three, um, what do you make of kind of that? How do you evaluate that growth? And then in terms, you know, as a prospect and then in terms of projecting who, who he'll be at the next level, what do you, what do you kind of make of those varying roles and how does that all, you know, bake into to what you perceive him to be as a, as a prospect? Yeah. I think that he had uh, probably a little bit higher than what most people consider like natural, like usually players get a little bit better every year. Mm-hmm. Um, but because he also had like a usage increase, um, in addition to just like being more of an offense unto himself, um, you know, a, a better free throw rate, a better three point attempt rate. Um, you can see that he is like that. If you sort of shoot between the two is like, yes, the, this is probably a little over his head um, in terms of, you know, if, if you are a 42% shooter, you should be taking far more than, you know, four threes and for 36, you should be, you know, above eight. And so you can kind of see like it, you, the I generally like to believe that volume is the best predictor of, of ability because it means both mm-hmm. you and a coach are, are, are coming to some conclusions about, you know, where your uh, shooting quality actually is. And I think Hug, uh, Coach Huggins uh, probably didn't want him taking as many threes for that reason. I, I would say expecting him to, to turn out as a positive shooter, especially on catch and shoot, probably with a little bit of movement. I don't think he's going to be an off the dribble guy in the league. Um, partially because of separation, partially because like I, I think that his ideal role is not playing on the ball, um, mm-hmm. which again sort of speaks to like why this is an interesting fit. From a this is a, if if you believe this is a roster in motion, I think Deuce McBride is a fantastic pick. If you're thinking of this as like run it back and add Deuce, I don't necessarily think that's a proper allocation of of resources. 
Um, just thinking about you know roster construction and and the the assets invested in Maxi. Yeah, and I think I think the best way to view it is a roster in motion because as I've talked about previously, Shams Toronto wrote an article wrote an article last week or maybe two weeks ago that said that like the wall the writing's on the wall for Ben Simmons with the franchise. And you don't write you don't write that as someone like Shams with, without a lot of intel. And so I would I would imagine if you you remove Ben Simmons, you would consider roster in motion. So um, with with Deuce offensively, do you view him? You say you don't want him on the ball much. So do you view him as kind of just a a guy who maybe occasionally runs, you know, can run a little bit off movement, but is more just a spot up guy. Or is he someone you can actually like, you know, be a secondary player in an action? Not the guy that uh, like a lot of actions are specifically designed for, but can be kind of a, a secondary cog. Or is he just a release valve more of, if that differentiator, you know, makes sense? I think the first one is more how I view him as a guy who like, if he's your fourth option, you're in a good place. If he's your third mm-hmm. option, you're like doing all right. But anything more than that is probably over his head because I, I view him as a, a high energy defensive player, somebody who I want just like you know harassing a ball handler for 94 feet, trying to burn, trying to get them. You know, I don't want to say tired because like they're NBA athletes, but like you know just harass a ball handler in the same way that like Patrick Beverly can do, or you know just just turning the intensity up as much as possible. And um, like in a dream world, I think that him and Maxi would be awesome at just alternating with that because uh, you know they they sort of have the same build and 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 the same motor. Um, and the same over body strength, but you also like can't really have an, a roster that has uh, either non-shooters or, or hesitant shooters to surround them because you're going to have difficulties. Uh, you're going to have difficulties building lineups in that sense. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think I mean it's just it's tough to know exactly who's going to be on the Sixers roster next year um, beyond maybe a couple of faces. But what would you make of kind of if you do have Deuce? Pat Maxi, Matisse, Seibel, like defensively, how do you go about kind of, because you're not going to play them together, but how do you go about maybe maximizing those three? Because as we've mentioned, you know, they're, I mean, Matisse is a great off-ball defender and a lot of, or at least a great playmaker off the ball. How do you go about kind of, what would you go about maximizing those three defensively? Because they're all kind of, you know, 6'5". I mean, Matisse is long and he's tall, but he's still 6'5 and slight of frame. Deuce is kind of slight of frame a little bit too, even though he has some strength. Max, he's very strong, but he's six one, six two. How would you go about trying to make sure those guys don't have a ton of diminishing returns defensively? Um, what would you kind of do to try to utilize them in, in the best possible ways? I mean, it's difficult because like it, it sort of has the issue of a lot of their best guys you want to throw at, like the, it's not the Matisse, like the sort of guys that you can throw Matisse at, you also can throw Maxi at. But it's just different ways of solving. Like, do you want to have somebody who's wraithing a little bit more and, and trying to go, uh, you know, guards into snaking the pick and roll where you can sneak up behind them? Or do you want to do the same thing, but instead of doing it with wraithing, it's just like brute strength. And mm-hmm. so I think that it's not about diminishing returns. It's just how, how much do you want to see each guy on a primary? The, to me, it's possible to have all three. It's just that some coaches would rather prefer one guy gets 35 minutes on an assignment. And then you, you know, you spell him when he's needed, but, you know, he's defending primaries for all of his minutes off floor. If you have a coach who believes more, like, I want to show as many looks as possible to good guards, and that, like, the idea being that you're not really going to have any one real solution against NBA stars, but you throwing as many looks as possible might stall out their calibration time, give them, you know, longer to process, and they'll figure it out. Um, I think if you are trying to switch between looks, like, that's a, that's a really fun three-guard group to throw people. I just don't necessarily know if that level of fine tuning is where the Sixers roster is right now. And that I think that if you have a 28th pick, you should try to get something that unlocks the people who you know will be on the roster rather than, you know, throwing a look, throwing something for a series you might not even be able to reach. Yeah. I, I think, I guess I, maybe I should back up a little bit on the idea that none, those three couldn't play together, wouldn't play together because we did see a lot of times throughout this, this season where they would play, you know, Shake Milton, Matisse Seidel, Tyrese Maxey, George Hill, uh, Furkan Korkmaz, a lot of guard, perimeter-oriented players together. So if this, if, the, if Deuce was someone that they drafted and they still had Maxey Matisse next year, I would, I would feel confident they would play together. So I should have backed up on that. But, but yeah, I think you, you definitely have some interesting, you know, abilities there. And with, especially because I think they can all kind of complement each other in some ways offensive. I mean, none of them are at their fully actualized. They're not going to step in and be this fully actualized version of themselves offensively, but Max with ability to get downhill, you know, Matisse improves as a cutter and kind of an impromptu screen setter, you know, Deuce with his spot up shooting. So I think, you know, I'm not trying to build around those three guys, of course, but I think there are some kind of interesting complementary tools there. And 
uh, it never hurts to have three really, you know, really tenacious on-ball defenders who can, especially two of them who are very good playmakers and, and, and Deuce and Matisse there. Um, but yeah. how, how do you, I mean, cause the way I try to view any guy who is going to come into the fold for the Sixers moving forward is how does he amplify Joel Embiid and to a lesser degree, how does he amplify Tobias Harris? So what, in what ways could Deuce make life easier for them? And then how could maybe they also make things easier for Deuce? Because, you know, they're going to play some minutes together. If Deuce is someone who's actually going to factor into the rotation at some point during the next two or three years, as Joel is in his prime, you know, you're going to expect Deuce to have some minutes alongside him. So what, what does Deuce do that you think could at least maybe more so offensively? How do you think he could, could, you know, ease things for, for Joel? Because I think for the most part, Joel is going to make things much easier defensively. Even he does help guys offensively, but what, what could Deuce do to maybe lighten a little bit for Joel who offensively who had a very, very huge usage rate throughout the entire season. I think the most important thing is have a well-spaced floor. Like, I think. You're choppy again, PD. Oh, can you? How are we picking up? Testing, testing, testing. You're good now. Uh, I just want to get a disclaimer for anyone listening. Okay. Yeah. yeah, you're good. I apologize for anyone who's listening to these that they're shy, but hopefully okay. the PD is, is well worth the uh, enduring some of the choppiness. But anyhow, uh, continue about kind of maybe how Deuce amplifies I will try to channel. Well I will try to, yeah. I mean, the most important thing is, is giving him a space space floor to wit- within which to operate to make sure that, you know, Joel doesn't face any more defenders than, like, what is possible like making sure that if and if you send a double that it has to pay not giving defenses an easier ability to cover him oh my god that's a huge bug wow the set is crazy um so i would say that it's just important what you can do is shooting at a high clip at a high volume and forcing defense to choose between sending help at a uh at a big who can make them pay if they don't and you know where if you do this, that helps, and Joel has easier passing grades that are to people who will catch and shoot and can force, force defenders to make that choice. And you still there? Can we hear you? I'm still here. Okay. Uh, yeah, you're a little you're a little choppy again, unfortunately. I heard some of it. But, and yeah, you're you're still choppy. <laughs> unfortunately, I apologize. Okay, for I'm really sorry issues. about this. I'm, no, uh, I'm doing a very. Un- so yeah, I mean, it's just it's it's about sending help, making sure that defenses have to play Joel straight up. No, don't tell me I'm choppy again. No, you're good. You're uh, good. This is unfortunate. You're, good you're okay. all right. You're you're good now. I just I just heard those last couple of things are completely clear. Um, but yeah, so I, I think the basis of it is that you kind of what I made out from it. And I'll, you know, I apologize for anyone listening. Uh, PD, I, for anyone listening now or uh, after the fact of the podcast, PD is well worth uh, enduring some of this. Um, but I think kind of your point is that you you want to limit how much is possible for a defense to throw at him. And Deuce is a very good, is a, someone who can who can help with that um, and whatnot. I am curious because one of the, because two of the thing two of the acquisitions last year that really helped Joel. And just the team in general, where Danny Green and Seth Curry, who are smart off-ball players, um, Danny obviously is you know, a very quick trigger. Seth is a little more off the ball, off the bounce juice rather than and was a little bit hesitant at times. But what do you make of Deuce in that way, in terms of like how he, you know, relocates around the arc and has, you know, it can get open angles and things like that. So what do you make of that part of his his game? Because I think that's a really important thing for any any complimentary player coming to the Sixers. How can they, you know? Broaden, the, broaden and simplify the passing angles and reads for Joel against doubles or triple teams. So how is Deuce in that regard? Um, I would say he grids out really well. Um, he's not a phenomenal mover, but it's good. And I also think that it's important when you're drafting as a good team that like a template exists. You're asking a guy to fill a role that they can see clearly and see how it works. And so it gives them a lot more you know, uh, of a template of understanding what needs to be done and also like it's just much easier to be like, hey, if you do this, this dude made 120 million dollars in his career. Would you like to, you know, every time you're open shoot? And they're like, yeah, I can do that. Where on a bad team, it can be a little bit more difficult to define a clear role and define expectations. 
So I think that mm-hmm. in that way, Deuce fits that idea. It's just a matter of making you know those two components connect to the larger vision of this roster and this team. Yeah, absolutely. I think just generally for any complementary player, infrastructure is important. And when you have Joel Embiid, there's a lot more infrastructure in place than a, a team that is still trying to clarify who its who its long-term players to build around are. And obviously, the Sixers have some things to answer there, but they have Joel, and that that answers a lot of questions. Um, before we maybe shift gears to another guy, what are maybe some of the swing skills you identify for Deuce that could maybe be the differentiator or difference between uh, maybe his high-end outcomes versus low-end outcomes in the NBA? I mean, his handle is going to be important. Um, mm-hmm. If I think that on his lower end outcomes, he's had, he has usage that forces him to create a little bit more. I know he's being mocked in the twenties and that's not necessarily like how, you know, it's not that he's going to have like a 35 usage or whatever, but it's just like being put in lineups where he has to make stuff happen for others at a, at a higher clip, even if it's not for himself could be a little bit more difficult to manage. Um, mm-hmm. And I think like his uh, his high end outcomes are ones where like his role is super defined, where he can he knows where he can use his energy, where his uh, you know harassment of ball handlers works out well, and um, and one with a really define how his offensive usage should be really allocated, and he makes the adjustment in like from a solid volume high, a, a solid volume high percentage shooter to a high volume shooter. Mm-hmm. How do if you're kind of if you're on the team that drafts him, what's the way you think you kind of go about trying to improve that that volume? Because for the Sixers, I think that is an important thing. Is they they at times their offenses struggle because they've had too many guys who maybe are good on the surface as shooters, but a little more hesitant. So how do you go about you know if you're if you're someone who's trying to develop dudes, how do you go about trying to improve you know, and bridge that gap from solid volume to very high volume to pair with you know his good his good uh, you know actual raw percentages. Uh, I mean, with rookies, it's really easy. You say if you're wide open, if Joel Embiid passes you the ball and you're wide open and you don't shoot, you come out of the game. <laughs> like, yeah. do you, would you like to play with Joel Embiid? Would you like to play on this team, a good team? Then if you're open, shoot the ball, you're a good shooter. Like that, mm-hmm. that seems to work pretty well. I mean, you have guys that who maybe don't have the percentages where it's going to require a little bit more tooth pulling. But I mean, like if you're a good shooter or like an eager shooter, like that is what how much like Joel understands that people send doubles when. <laughs> when you kick it to somebody and they refuse to put the ball up. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I think the dynamic, laying the dynamic clear and, and enforcing the dynamic is pretty easy. Um, it's certainly not a guy who it's like, yeah, well, you know, the percentages will shake out eventually. It's like, no, if you look at him historically, like it's, he, he's a good shooter. It's just a matter of getting them up at a commensurate volume to, to off ball value. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think we can probably shift to, to Trey Murphy now. Before we do, is there anything you want to add about, Deuce and his potential role. The Sixers, are we good to kind of shift into a breakdown about Trey Murphy's game and you know, potential fit with, with the Sixers? Yeah, uh, I'm good. To, I'm good to shift to Trey. Um, cool. Um, let's do it. So uh, just give a rundown of, of Trey Murphy. You know, obviously played Virginia last year, Trent from Rice um, after a couple of years. But who, what is what are his skill sets? What's the allure for him as a prospect, and particularly with, with the Sixers? Um, yeah, I mean, Trey's really easy to, to explain the, uh, the value play at 28. He's a, a big long wing. He's a six nine with like a plus three wingspan, uh, who shot 50, 40, 90, uh, in college and is a very good positional defender. Like he, he doesn't necessarily have like the, the tools, but like within the structure of a defense, he does well. Um, his shooting is, is really interesting because, like, he doesn't have a ton of off-ball juice. I think he only took, like, 50 shots off the dribble in his college career. Um, mm-hmm. And, like, I mean, he has the high release point. He has everything to get that. Um, I think that's what separates him from, like, I think he had showed more off the dribble, like, off the dribble, like, off of extreme uh, movement, like Hauser uh, or, like, Matt Hurt, you could – make an argument for him as the hands down best shooter on the draft, but because some of those tools are still question marks, um, you know, he, he remains as like one of the like best catch and shoot guys and guys shooting off shakes in, in this class. And some like you talked about people who are hesitant to like, will not be. And there's extreme value from two or six, nine who, uh, knock, who knocked down for a 43% club. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, I'm curious, you know, 
because I, I think at this point, for the for the most part, the Sixers have a lot of good shooters. You know, they have Danny Green, Tobias Harris. You know, Tobias Harris is more of a scorer than a shooter, but he can still space the floor. Seth Curry. Um, what do you make of Trey Murphy's ability to, if like if he has, if he has run off the line? I mean, well, one, do you think that's going to be possible a lot with the high release point? And two, if at all, like what what can he do to punish defenses if they are able to run off the line? But I guess most importantly, you mentioned that high release point. Is that something that you think kind of helps counteract those closeouts? Like, is that something you think just allows him to shoot over the top more and not have to put the ball on the ground and whatnot? Yeah, I mean, especially for him as a rookie, I would not want him to put the ball on the ground because I don't think that there's that many people who can really like trouble his like like Ryan Anderson, like the peak version of Ryan Anderson, like the closeouts didn't matter. Unless you were putting a hand on the ball, it was just like uh, if, if I if I can see the rim, I can get a you know a forty percent look at it. Um, mm-hmm. That would be sort of the ideal Trey Murphy for me. Not, he's not the same player as Ryan Anderson. Um, I think Ryan Anderson probably had more bounce off the dribble, especially young Ryan Anderson. Um, um, but the idea being that like if you take almost sixty percent of your shots as threes, like there's not closeouts that are bugging you. And mm-hmm. it, it wasn't like he was you know doing this in a, a conference where people who couldn't close out on him or there wasn't NBA size, like he was doing this in the ACC. Um, so, I mean, he, he's, he already has a small usage. He already, you know, he doesn't get fouled a lot, only like a 21% foul rate. Um, but he does the things that you would want in terms of, of trigger, in terms of shaking. Um, and like you could, there's only so many movement guys you can really support in, um, in an offense anyway. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so having him as just like, look, you know, you can spot him out from deep high release point it's a it's a natural fit if say like a a trade is made for ben that isn't a huge roster shakeup in terms of team identity i think this is this is probably like the most uh neutral of the people that we're talking about in terms, like in terms of covering both like potential trades and not trades um because like i mean i don't have any sources in the trade market it's just not a that's not that's not where uh any of my uh intuition lies but you kind of have to prepare for you know, what returns might be and, and just getting something thinking about this, the draft as an exercise in, in team building. Murphy fits the modern NBA in a lot of perspectives. Um, and, and in that way, it's, it's, a, it's a both simple evaluation and an easy evaluation. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, I am curious though, maybe this is something that doesn't really concern you, but um, you know, does it, does it matter at all to you that the fact that, you know, he didn't ever have like a huge, Usage rate, you know, he took seven and a half shots this year, 10 at Rice's second year, six his first year there. Um, because a lot of times notable NBA players tend to have big usage rates. Like I always look back at guys like Jermon Green or Torrey Craig, um, obviously very different uh, players and caliber of players. But, you know, at this point, they're not huge, hugely offensive guys, but they had big big usage rates in college. Does that matter at all to you with, with the guy, Trey Murphy, who's hovered around 19, 20% usage rate? Does that or is that something that doesn't really bother you because like he's going to shoot the heck out of the ball when he gets his shots and whatnot? I mean, he played in an al- a slow Galatarian offense. So there isn't like, unless you're doing like Kyle Guy uh, at, at Virginia, just like the way that they play, the pace they play at, and also you lack uh, a lot of off the dribble creation. Like it, it's just easier to hover in that you know eighteen to twenty two range. Um, I mean, I think that the shots per game is a, a legitimate concern, but like when you pace adjust those numbers, it's it's fine. Um, especially considering that like Virginia didn't have an awesome uh, advantage creator generally. Um, mm-hmm. I just think that like this is one that doesn't really need to be like overthought. Also, his defensive numbers don't like super jump out at you. You know, lower block percentage, lower steal percentage. But, like, in a lot of ways, Virginia is built to not do those things. Like, they just want to play mm-hmm. great positional defense and force you to take a, a heavily contested 14-footer, especially mm-hmm. if you're going towards that baseline. That's an awesome shot. It just won't show up on a stat sheet, in, in, you know, or, or show up in a steal and block percentage. So I think that similar to, like, how Texas Tech has worked or, you know, a, a lot of specific, like, really specific defensive coverages, that he is a better defender than I think impact stats would tell you. And that once you kind of look at him in the history of of players within the Virginia, like, conservative four shots mold, like, he grades out well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think the, the, the most, you know, salient example of that is DeAndre Hunter. You know, he's a guy that yep. I was clearly wrong around as a prospect. Um, I read too much. I kind of did correlation and causation with the steal and block rates. And obviously he had a, didn't play a ton in the second year, but was really, really awesome defensively. 
um, because of that. So uh, clearly different. I mean, I'm not saying that Trey Murphy is the under hunter, but uh, if you want to relate, relate to the Sixers, Tyrese Max is a guy who didn't have great stock numbers, but uh, turned out to be a pretty solid defender as a rookie because he's positionally sound and knows where to be and, and whatnot. And, and, and so obviously very different players <laughs> all around there and then that grouping. But uh, point being is, yeah, I think it's, you know, it's position, positional, just sound positional defense is something really valuable, forcing guys into places they don't want to be, even if it's not. Because at the end of the day, like, yeah, a steal, is, can, be a, a steal can be a turnover, or steal is a turnover, excuse me. A block can be a turnover. Um, but a crappy shot is, is, is largely the same thing. It, it's, it sparks transition run out, it sparks the open floor. You know, it's, it's not, it, it forces the, def- the offense to do something it doesn't want to do. So there's a lot of value in, in that sort of thing. And Virginia has always kind of been very, very adept at that. Um, how, I mean, you, obviously he's about 6'9 or so. How functional would you say his size is on both ends, um, particularly on defense? Because I think that's something the Sixers could use off the benches. It's just more size. Like I said, they're playing a lot of four perimeter heavy guys out there around Dwight Howard a lot. Um, guys who are either slight of frame or, you know, 6'4 or shorter. Um, or I guess for kind of 6'7, but he's fairly slight of frame. So, um, but how, how functionally is, is he, you know, is Murphy, especially on defense? I think I could just use a little more, a little more size out there off the bench. I mean, he's, He's probably better defending skinny guys than strong guys. But, like, I think that, I mean, you talked about how good Maxi is defender as a rookie. Like, he's going to only get better. And I would much rather, like, I, I think that uh, in a lot of times we overrate, like, the height-strength intersection, um, both against guys who are skinny and, and can, you know, disrupt shots if they have the ability to hold positions. Like, you don't have to be ultra-strong, just strong enough to, to hold a spot and, and give a good contest. And then, like, smaller guys who can challenge handles and, and bump people off spots, which like, I think you're going to see more of Maxi guarding like strong threes and like potentially like some fours, especially if the force can't dribble um, because he can alter uh, their alter the way that they move and alter their ability to get to spots. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think you know, that, that kind of covers a lot of Murphy. As you said, it seems like it's a pretty simplistic pitch for him. Um, but I still, I still am curious. What are kind of the swing skills, or you know, just reasons that he might either hit a high end outcome or a low end outcome for him? Even particularly on the stickers, if you want to tie it into that. that yeah, play. I mean, like because he hasn't had a ton of, um, you know, he, he hasn't had to do a lot of what I would say is like reactive shooting. Um, mm-hmm. You know, what happens when teams? You know, it's a hard closeout and an angled closeout. He can't attack it, and he has to like either sidestep or one dribble step back. To, to create a better shooting angle. Like what happens if that's 30% of his shots instead of like five or 10. Mm. Um, and because like so much of his prospect profile is centers around the ludicrous shooting ability, like how, what other ways does he present value? Is it going to be like more rebounding, you know, Virginia's a team rebounding team. Another, you know, uh, that, that intersection of seals and blocks also goes to rebounding. Like there's certain teams that are just, I don't want to say black boxes, but, coaching philosophy and and general team cohesion can create a disruptive uh scouting parameter if you're just you know looking if you if you give maybe give a little bit more weight to uh to box score metrics um Mm -hmm. i think that like it's really going to be about how much of what is being asked of him is similar to his virginia role um if you look at like the rice tape when he was a little when he was asked to have a little bit more juice i think there are there are bad moments granted we're looking at something two or three you know, years back with no real counterfactual, but there's, there's reasons to say like, if you can build a, you know, a, uh, a faster paced version of Virginia, you're going to get a, a, a pretty good result. And, um, you know, then it's either just shooting or, you know, shooting tainted by uh, asking him to do things where he's still learning on the block. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that makes sense. I think, I think that's a great point about kind of just the the balance between some of those tougher shots from tougher angles and whatnot, and what exactly that plays out as in in the NBA. Um, let's shift gears though to to JT Thor. Everyone that we've covered or I've covered on this podcast series so far, I have a general idea of them just because because some of my early season draft work or my previous draft draft work from previous seasons. My previous draft work from previous seasons. My goodness, there's a reason I'm a writer, not a not a podcaster for, for most of my profession here. Um, but give me, give us a breakdown on JT Thor because he's just a guy I don't really know much about. I'm I'm really curious, kind of what what intrigues you. What do you think he could offer the Sixers? Why is why is JT Thor a prospect? I guess. 
Yeah, I mean that's a that's a fantastic question. I mean, JT Thor is also like a broadly considered a mystery box. Um, who it doesn't help the fact that people didn't know how old he was until like four weeks ago. Um, you know, official sites were running with the idea that he was like nineteen going on twenty because he's like, you know, his birthday's coming up in a, a, a couple months. And uh, then you know, just through Twitter, people figured out that actually he's eighteen and he's one of the youngest prospects in the draft, and and you know played most of this year on the very young side. And suddenly those numbers go from being like, okay, he's a little inconsistent to uh, actually this, there's a, there's a bundle of upside here. The other thing that, that makes him really difficult to scout is that um, he kind of had three different seasons. Um, he played 12 games with Sharif Cooper. He played 10 games with Justin Powell and he played zero games with both. Um, hmm. And both of them are, you know, Sharif's a draft boss, uh, you know, a, a lottery, you know, a lottery level prospect in this draft, Justin Powell, uh, will be a, most likely be a first rounder in 2022. Um, and Thor is, you know, Thor is kind of like a, a, a hyper mobile five or, you know, a more stretchable four. Um, but he's not a creator. He, he's a, a, a play finisher in his current archetype. He has, you know, the ability to, to alter space, but he's not going to create it for himself and others. And to have two of your shot creators, uh, who are first round uh, or who are NBA players not play uh, together and create for you in a, in a synergistic environment um, certainly makes him harder to evolve involve because you're kind of scouting these three samples uh, in, in approaching them, you know, and they all kind of almost reach the threshold where they mean something, but kind of not. Um, it's a fantastic prospect to talk about. I mean, his bio data, he's, you know, six, nine uh, with like a plus six wingspan um, shooting numbers are uh, 44% from the field. About thirty percent from three, seventy-five percent from one. You know, there's interesting stuff there at a, at, at size. He's also like very athletic, uh, really quick twitch, uh, good lateral mobility. Um, in a lot of ways, you can look at him and see a really uh, modern NBA prospect. Where you're like, oh, this is everything I would want. The big, it's just early on in the developmental process. And you can also see like, hey, I wouldn't want to take this risk because it's really early on in the developmental process. And sometimes, you know, it can be hard to mistake the signal for us. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, what, what is it, you know, so, you know, I don't like to always just use the broad term upside play, um, too often, but what is it about the Sixers specifically that, you know, intru- is it, is it just the fact that you think he might be available there and is maybe worthy of a much higher pick or what is it from the Sixers perspective that, that intrigues you? Because I, like, I don't ever think they should play it safe, but, you know, the reality is they, they don't really have, you know, with Joel Embiid kind of right in this ma- in the middle of his prime. They don't have all this time to, you know, let guys kind of reach a higher end outcome in four years. Um, but so, what is it from from that perspective that you think is is most, you know, alluring for you? Um, I think that it's that as a good team, there is a much easier way to um, to build definite roles for for upsidey prospects. So prospects who have multiple theories of what they could be or multiple developmental pathways. And it allows you to be like, look, you can play on this team. We just need you to do X, Y, and Z. I mean, sort of similar, like we talked about with the prospects where it's like, Hey, we just need you to, you know, to shoot off shakes or um, in Trey Murphy's case, you know, we need, we need you to just execute rotations and guard this specific type of guy with JT Thor. You can say like, you know, in your first two years, we want you to do these things and you know, that's it. And I think as, as good teams, that can sound really scary to be like, yes, you're going to play, you know, it just turns 19 real minutes. Um, what I will offer as a counter is that one, it can be very helpful for young teams to have, or uh, good teams to have young guys on them, um, just from an energy perspective. Cause I mean, like, you know, it's a long season and, and guys, when you know you're going to play playoff minutes, there's some, you know, Wednesday, to you know, three games in five days in Cleveland that you might not get up for, and the 19 year old kind of doesn't have any excuses to not get up for it. Um, and two, I think that it having an upside play who is under co- a cost controlled contract who is more likely to uh, probably have a look because they are uh, a, a longer term player, most likely going to have a lesser uh, second contract, is actually a good resource allocation instead of building your back end bench with you know, uh, minimum guys trying to mix in you know, a, an upside play so that if say this window does extend for five more years in that fourth or fifth year, you know, some of the, the, the seeds have bloomed and you're looking at somebody who's contributing where if you continue to do the, you know, build your roster out of, you know, 12th men who have accepted pay cuts, like you, you're reliant on some of those guys aging really gracefully, or there's continually being a surplus of them. 
Yeah, I think I think that point about energy is good because I mean I think the Sixers saw that quite a bit with Tyrese Maxey. He I mean he I, mean, I don't want to say he's the he didn't he didn't save their season in Game Six, but they were they looked pretty disengaged in Game Six in Atlanta, and he came in and did a bunch of awesome stuff offensively and kind of you know got, held the held the fort down for a few minutes before the starters could actually get their act together and. Um, you know, they ended up winning that game. It didn't, didn't matter for the series, but, um, you know, that sort of thing matters, you know, um, generally. So um, and I, I like the point, especially about the idea that, you know, just having more more avenues to, you know, legitimate rotation players or, or starters uh, because you don't know kind of how – because the NBA just moves so quickly. You don't know how things are going to – you don't know how timelines are going to, you know, either shorten or change or – you know, widen or, or lengthen, whatever you want to say there. And so having, you know, not just playing it safe all the time, I think is important there for sure. Um, is there any, like the skill wise, is there anything that with, with Thor that you think, you know, could be a worthwhile addition for the Sixers in, in the next, in that couple of years, or is it more just about kind of the energy behind it? And maybe the idea that they just, they just need more, more talent because at the end of the day, that's what the Sixers need. They just need more talent to reach where they'd like to go with, with Joel Embiid at the forefront. Yeah, I mean, the idea is that, like, in, in the, I would say, the better outcomes of Thor, he's able to play with Embiid as a floor spacer. I mean, he did have, like, a 38 three-point rate. Um, and, you know, as a person who believes in attempts, that bodes really well. He had a 45 free throw rate. So it's the idea of, like, you have a guy who is athletic enough to be a role man, but also has uh, enough shooting chops to be consistently used as a pop guy um, with mobility to potentially cover fours. And I think pretty quickly you could find somebody who would be able to fill the Mike Scott role or the idea of Mike Scott. Uh, you know, he did fall off this past season, but the year before that archetype is something that I think even like a second or third year JT Thor could fill. And that's one that's valuable when building you know, second units and building energy units and uh, getting big man shooting next to Embiid where he doesn't have to take as many attempts, but you can also, you know, Having multiple mobile defensive bigs allows for a lot of interesting roster construction and lineup construction in a world where Ben does get moved. I mean, you can just get, you know, one-way guards onto the onto the floor, and that's extremely valuable in playoff minutes because, like, we've seen Lou Williams, like, swing playoff, you know, uh, lineup sets. Yeah, I think yeah, that's, that's the thing is that the Sixers have kind of been trying to find the 2018-19 version of Mike Scott the last couple of years, you know, he just dealt with a lot of injuries. You know, it doesn't seem like he's probably going to come back next year since he's a free agent either. But I mean, you know, tying it back to like, I think that's part of the reason that Trey Murphy would be interesting. It's just a stretch four. You can trust to shoot the ball when it comes to him and, and, and whatnot. That, that's a valuable, valuable thing. And just, it gives you, gives you more ability. To, if you have size out there, it just gives you more ability. It was that can shoot. It just tend, tends to broaden what you can do. On, usually on offense, but just in general, what you can do. So that, that makes sense. Um, before we shift to to BJ Boston, another fascinating, you know, prospect. I think for an array of what for an array of reasons. What are what are kind of the what are the swing skills for for JT Thor and how and tied to that? How would you go about developing him uh, on a team like the Sixers that you know are probably going to be you know at the very least a top four or five seed for the next few seasons? I mean, the Sixers have a, a very positive developmental stuff. I'd say. And um, I think with, with Thor, it's, it's about getting a unified idea of what he is um, for players who have multiple developmental pathways. Um, you know, be, being a four, which I think like is, is probably his rookie position. I mean, long-term, I'd like to see him be a, a four and in, in a back of five as well. Um, it is important to get a theory of how you'd like to use players. I think in bad organizations, players can get a fours, especially in to just like fill in all the gaps and be like, oh yeah, we want you to shoot sometimes and also drive sometimes. Uh, it'd be great if you could pass a little bit here and there. It's like, you aren't telling me anything. You're just listing good stuff. So just do good stuff, okay? And then like you realize that the player hasn't developed in four years because you're not you know, using them in a particular direction, just asking them to be positive. I mean, this is uh, you know the idea of Aaron Gordon as a young player just didn't uh, materialize because he was being asked to do a different thing every single year um, because that was what the, the roster needed. Um, I would say that the the upside, um, like what would make the, the positives work, is that like he, this is an environment where he needs to shoot, and for mm-hmm. young players who have shown a willingness to shoot, there there are certain you know situations where if you play them as a backup five initially, the shooting goes away, or maybe you lose a year of development, and then 
you know, changing and altering courses. I think that because the Sixers have a, a big already in place, and I would say another big in, in Dwight Howard or like certainly that archetype is something that the Sixers really enjoy, whether it's like Dwight or, or JaVale or, you know, just a room, another room running five. Like so many things are in place that there is a very clear role for Thor as a four or backup five, you know, on his rookie contract. So that is to me a positive developmental situation because as things go, he can add, you know, more and more. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think, I think that, that all, all makes sense. And that's, and that's the thing that I, I we just goes back to infrastructure, right? If you can have a simplified role, you know, that, that clearly states what they need you to do. Um, and maybe you're either you're in the rotation, how you stay in it or your path to the rotation. That's important because then it allows you to focus on those skills. And then once you, you know, you refine them, you, you maybe have a little more leeway and you, and in the background, you continue mm-hmm. to expand other things. So, uh, yeah, I think it just all ties back to infrastructure. So that's why there's, there's pros and cons to, to being a team like the Sixers where you're drafting quite low. You know, obviously the, the talent is maybe a little lower, but you are a little lesser than it is when you're drafting the lottery or wherever it is. But you have you have more infrastructure in place to simplify a developmental path rather than, as you said, the Aaron Gordon thing. I think I think Aaron Gordon's a great example of kind of what a lack of infrastructure can do to a guy who has a lot of hat, came into the NBA with a lot of interesting skills and tools, but uh, and is a good NBA player, but it just was never really had a consistent outline of who the organization or team wanted him to be. So um, that's kind of a tangent, but I think it's, it's an important thing to mention with any, any, any prospect is how important infrastructure can be. Um, yeah. I mean, and that segues nicely into our last guy. Um, yeah, so, exactly. Exactly. And BJ Boston, who here, BJ Boston, who was a, you know, was a guy that a lot of people liked coming into the year uh, quite a lot, um, but had a tough year. Yeah. So he was just a, give the he was a RCI consensus top five guy. Yeah, yeah. BJ was a consensus RSCI top five guy. Um, went to Kentucky. BJ is about six seven, has a, a almost plus four wingspan. Um, extremely strange year in that, like he kind of has three seasons in one. The beginning of the season, he shoots really well from two, to, and did really poorly from three. In the middle, it's kind of poor for you know better, but you know more between the two um, from three and from two. And then at the end of the year, it's switched where the three pointer is is you know near forty percent, but the two pointer. Uh, especially at the rim is, is really poor. Um, BJ is probably the only bet at this spot who will either be there or be in the range who is a, a, a real bet to put two feet in the paint from a, uh, from a wing position. Um, BJ's handle is very advanced. He just always like at times he needs it because his physical tools, um, specifically mm-hmm. his uh, explosion, his core stability and his, you know, uh, high center of gravity uh, work against him. When the shot's mm-hmm. not falling because defenders can just crawl into him um, and, and make life difficult. That's, you know, what the, the rim finishing difficulties are. That's what, you know, at times the needing 14-footers to fall to, you know, uh, tough shots to go for him to have efficiency. Um, I think you can look at a lot. Of, you can look at a couple of things from, from BJ's, you know, um, one year at Kentucky. But I think the one thing that I take away is like, hey, if you put him in a primary situation, this is probably going to happen again. And what... Mm-hmm the Sixers can guarantee is that he will not be in a primary position. So now you have a, a, a an overqualified, I mean, like I, I think PJ could eventually like certainly be a primary, you know, if, if, if the physical development and, and the flexibility happen um, and you get like a, you know, a really upper tier outcome, but you have a guy who's overqualified for his role from a handle and shot creations perspective. And on a good team, that's what you always want is guys who could potentially have a 22 usage. If they have 17. And they have, you know, unique skills for that role, whether that's the ability to create out of sidesteps, you know, whether that's the ability to, to give it a defender three or four moves. And they're also not being guarded by primaries anymore. They're being guarded by the third or fourth best defender on, you know, a lineup because the Sixers have, you know, have a place where BJ will never be guarded by, you know, the, the best defender on the opposing team. So I think that we've talked about a number of different pathways. BJ is the only one here who could potentially be a guy who breaks down a defense. It's just not going to be next year. So this would be, like, I think Thor has immediate use. BJ might be a guy who, like, plays more in the G League. But mm-hmm. if you're thinking of this as a long-term project and thinking of, like, this creation ceiling or this creation problem, it will not be solved by one player and will not be solved by, um, you know, one trade. It's going to be, let's build a, you know, an environment where multiple people can create advantage and, you know, can attack a tilted floor. And just getting outlier traits, which, like, at the 28th spot, somebody who can do a lot of the things BJ Boss can do is extremely unusual. And instead of being like, yeah, well, I mean, yeah, he had a bad year. It's like, well, he's never going to have that year again. 
Like he will not be at a Kentucky. He will not be asked to be a primary. So trust your development staff, trust the environment, trust the infrastructure that you've built and, you know, make necessary changes to, you know, uh, his body so that he doesn't have valgus collapse when he shoots. Um, and, and trust the, uh, the traits that he has shown to deserve being an RSCI guy. Yeah. And I think, I think that's an important point, but just betting on the talent and whatnot, because not that you ever want to look at guys just as this in this way, but the fact of the matter is if, if you really do trust BJ to be a, like a value play at 28, then he's going to, wherever he lands up, whether it's, you know, like it's maybe he plays sparingly as a rotation guy and you see some flashes or he's in the G league and he's a very good player. Like, that gives him even more value to the point. Maybe, maybe you are somebody you move him to a to a team that is looking to move off a veteran and have more development. So I don't, I don't ever want to treat a player just as like a, a vehicle to improve your roster. But the fact of the matter is, like, if you do, if you do, from the end of the Sixers, like, maybe that's what you do because. Uh, so I totally get that. And the thing about BJ's, what I think I overlooked when I watched him at Sierra Canyon, is the the handle was really intri- intriguing with the space creation, but the the core strength just really did, didn't allow him to protect that handle as well. So do you think that's a pretty like salvageable? Like, do you think you can get to the point where that handle is functional, like it was at Sierra Canyon? You can get to those pull ups and whatnot because I was from what, the stuff I saw in Kentucky, especially early in the season. Um, that was his biggest issue. Was the handle just wasn't functional because he couldn't prevent guys from crowding them because of the frame and the core strength and whatnot. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think BJ has, has like a rare handle, um, in terms of like the underlying skills that make up handle. Um, I think the, like the hand eye coordination, the ability to sell moves, all of that is like extremely unique. And that's what made him a top five guy. And the question that you're asking as a staff is like, can we add flexibility to him? Can we safely add, you know, lower body strength? Can we lower his center of gravity? And can we give him counters that he can reasonably get to that won't require him to make five or six moves? And like, if the answer to that question is yes, and PJ Boston is there at 28, you sprint to the podium and be like, yeah, we got no problems. PJ Boston, thank you. See you guys. Like, in the same way that like Tyrese Mackey last year, it's like, if you believe that he can shoot, like, you do this and don't ask any questions. And Mm -hmm. we saw how that worked out. Yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's working out quite pretty well. Uh, for them so far, obviously a nice year, and uh, you know it, it ties back to BJ. Though the fact of the matter is, Maxi might be a guy who was moved for an up, for an upgrade on the roster. It doesn't mean that's the only reason they draft him. No, I never, again, I want to make clear I don't ever just advocate for viewing players through that lens. But um, absolutely, but that's the that's part of the thing with the Sixers is they're in a they're in a win now position, and they might move Maxi for a guy who helps them beat win now, and maybe maybe Maxi's better in four years than that guy they trade for, but. That's just that's the way it goes. So I think with BJ, that's the same way. As you, if you trust your development staff to to tap into everything he does well and mitigate some of the things he struggles with, you absolutely take him there. But he's a guy you think is more in that that fifty that fifty pick range rather than the top top thirty. I think that I think that basically his range starts at twenty five and it ends at sixty. Okay. Um, because the questions that we were asking are, you know, philosophical questions about how a team feels about its developmental staff, how it feels about its G League staff, how it feels about allocation of opportunity, um, and how it feels about, you know, the rarity of certain things. Like, if you believe that, uh, you know, uh, that level of, of selling your moves is not rare, then they're going to have BJ much lower. If you believe it's rare, you're going to have BJ higher. And so there's, um, I don't think there's anybody that's really advocating for him in the 20s, or at least certainly I haven't like the high, the high 20s really means. Um, mm-hmm. But in this area, this is where you kind of get all of the, you know, the possibility for no risk because like no one has ever been fired for missing on somebody in the twenties if they have high upside or in the second mm-hmm. round. So, I mean, like, I think that for me, this is like the, basically the Thor argument, but, it, but multiply it. Cause it's like, you can, if BJ works like this really, really works and you look fantastic, but you, it, it's about uh, self-awareness of, of player development, self-awareness of, of, uh, of what you believe about uh, players' progressions and also like what you believe about the players that you've drafted to sort of, I don't want to say this archetype, but to do some of the same things and whether those things overlap, whether they um, are, are synergistic or, you know, whether you're kind of just like, yeah, I, I don't, maybe you don't believe that guys can bounce back as much. I mean, some people, you know, once they're a top five guy, struggle to, adapt to being and not saying this with, with any insight about BJ, but just in general, like some guys go from being McDonald's all Americans to being late first round picks. And they struggle with the mental aspect of going to the G league. Other guys mm-hmm. are like, Oh yeah, no, I'm like, I love, you know, I love grinding. I love being, you know, I love spending times in Sioux falls. Like, I don't care. I just want to be in the gym. And I just want to get better. I, I want to make sure that never happens to me. And like, those are things that different teams will probably have different answers for. And 
part of what makes the draft so much fun is like we're kind of doing this with one hand tied tied behind our back because we <laughs> yeah. don't I, I didn't I didn't sit down and ask BJ Boston you know what he learned from his year at Kentucky or you know um, how he feels that you know his, the college strength programs changed or didn't change his jumper but uh, I'm certain that if you asked every, every every NBA team under you know true serum they would give you wildly different answers about those questions. <laughs> yeah, I think just all the different variables we discussed you know, whether it's related to a specific prospect or contextually wherever he lands or things like that just shows you how, how tough th- this thing is. And I'm not, I'm not here trying to say the draft is a crap shit. I think that's a really lazy cop out for things, but it just shows like, there's just so many things that go into this uh, in terms of evaluating a prospect and what, what ceiling or outcome they reach. Um, that is really, really tough to know if you're not you know, in, in the, like the top 1% of know-how with this stuff. Um, but PD, I do want to ask if, with these four guys, how would you kind of power rank them for the Sixers? Like, if you if you were if you had unilateral decision making power in the Sixers front office, um, how would you kind of go about if the, all these guys were available at twenty eight or whatever? How would you go about ranking them and who who fits best for them, considering everything we talked about? Because there's a lot there's a lot going on with the Sixers right now. So yeah, oh, it, it's one of the most fun teams to talk about in terms of uh, the things that are occurring. Um, and, you know, doing some forecasting on things I have absolutely negative insight into. It's the best kind. Um, I would say that I, so I am assuming in my world, Ben Simmons has already been traded for a package of players. I'm not going to, you know, open the, the box on what that package of players is, but let's just say a change has been made. My order would be Thor, Boston, Murphy, McBride. And that's not a slide on McBride. I just think that, like, there's probably too much overlap and that both of the Sixers couldn't get the best out of him. And he couldn't get the best out of the Sixers. Um, I think that Thor has the like highest realistic. And I also think that it's most likely that the player that uh, that Ben Simmons is traded for is a creation-minded wing. And uh, I think he's better with the ball in his hands. If you're going to give him, uh, you know, NBA reps as a as a rookie, there's probably an overlap there. Um, and just trying, like, as kind of like the Jimmy experience was that like, you kind of just need to play a certain amount of guys together um, when they're traded or like bad things can happen. So I would say that, that I'd have Thor over BJ, but I think it's the same idea, but at different positions in terms of upside bets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Uh, just, just want to get kind of your power ranking on that because previously on these two, two uh, first two series of the, about the draft, they kind of gone two guys at 28, two guys at 50. We just talked about four in general. Um, probably I don't see the better way to go about it because it's so tough to know where guys are going to land or be selected in this draft, you know, so far out still. Um, I say yeah, so far out go. yeah, yeah, that, that too. Uh, and that's, that's a, 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 lar- a rising, a rising development. I think we'll see as, as player agency continues to expand, which is cool. Um, guys should be able to go where they feel most comfortable developmentally. Um, but, I think that covers it. Anything else you want to hit on? Um, otherwise, no, give yourself um, a little plug. Where can people find you? Where can they read your work? Um, the floor is yours here. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Um, you can find me at Above the Break 3 on Twitter. Um, I do player breakdowns on Patreon that are always free, but if you have a couple bucks to chip in, it's much appreciated. Paper stats and video packages. Um, I do a series on YouTube called Let's Watch Film, who our host, our gracious host, <laughs> our uh, – our world famous host has appeared on and had did a, a fantastic job. I mean, him and his mustache, which co-star um, did great. Um, and I've recently taken a job at Cerebro sports um, where I am uh, doing consulting writing and uh, building, building metrics for uh, uh, trying to universalize uh, basketball stats across all levels. Um, so I have some stuff coming out for them uh, in the coming weeks and months. And if you, you know, are a team employee or uh, really anyone who would like to know more about uh, uh, proliferation of, of, uh, of box score data, uh, give me a holler. Um, thank you so much for having me. Um, I have a great arm workout. I've held my phone almost above my head for about an hour now because that's the one place where it happened. I apologize <laughs> to everyone who, uh, who experienced technical difficulties. Those are my fault. A hundred percent. Um, I'm very much in the trenches right now. That's out of PYPL. Um, it's, it's not Jackson's fault at all. And thank you for bearing with it. Um, I'm no, uh, I am uh, experienced in the art of technical difficulties and say that there's nothing worse than experiencing them. And Jackson dealt with them, uh, with grace and aplomb. <laughs> Aplomb, there we go. A great word to, to end this thing on. But yes, I appreciate everyone for listening. Um, 
I will make sure, I will have to put that in the description that you held your your phone above your head for the entire thing. Um, I assume anyone listening to this as a podcast or in a stream already is familiar with PD's work. Um, but if you are not, please do check it out everywhere he is. Um, one of, if not the best, you know, public-facing draft people these days, and maybe even the among private-facing draft people as well. Uh, so, PD, once again, thank you for listening. Uh, for everyone else listening, I'll be back on Saturday with four more prospects. We're going to churn through as many guys as possible. Hope this has been insightful. Please, again, rate and uh, subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We're going to to me. Uh, but until Saturday, because today is Thursday, yes. Um, we're a week out from the draft. Uh, stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe. Uh, talk to all you guys. Week again soon. out.